1: Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. Um, this week we've got with us um, Renee Sullivan, who is um, a, a desister, a desisted woman, um, who wrote a, a fantastic article for um, Psychology Today, which I'll um, I'll put the link in our, in our show notes. Um, and you're also working on uh, a memoir, um, Renee, to kind of describe your experience um with gender dysphoria and in the process of of desisting. So welcome to our show to to talk a little bit about your story
2: thank you so much yeah i'm really happy to be here
1: um if you could maybe we, where we could start is is that psychology today article that you wrote and and just how that came about and your process and, and writing that
2: oh sure great thank you so um it actually started because um so some of you all may remember the article on detransition that Katie Herzog posted, published in The Stranger, the Seattle newspaper at, um, I guess that was probably 2017.
0: I think so, yeah, yeah.
2: And, you know, she she got uh, quite a bit of political backlash for it, but also, you know, there was this sort of few several days of peace after it was published, but before the backlash started, where there was actually a lot of very, productive and kind of cool, interesting discussions going on in the, basically the comment section of the stranger after the article. And I was engaged with that a little bit. And there were people kind of asking, you know, like, are there more of these people? Where can I hear more of these stories? And I was basically expressing what my experience had been as well as I could. And that actually, through a chain of events, ended up seg- ended up segueing into me getting to publish it as um, part of psychology today's, they call it their one minute memoir column. Uh-huh. And so it's essentially, you know, you the tiniest possible memoir uh-huh. and I had a wonderful time writing it. Um, the editor, the editorial staff there was fantastic. I had a great time with them and I was, you know, I feel really grateful that they published it. I am working on something that's essentially a longer expanded version that includes a lot of stuff that just wasn't able to fit into a one page column. And that I am hoping to publish as a memoir essay, and I am looking for a place for that. So. good stuff.
1: So we'd love yeah. to you know get to know you and 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 hear some of your story. Um, kind of the uh, the spoiler version of your memoir perhaps, but
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um. great. Thank you. Um, so you know, I feel like a lot of it, you know, I mean of course I could you know start as you know in childhood, but I feel like, I feel like where the events in my life related to gender and gender identity and dysphoria and so on, I feel like where that all really kicked off for me was actually during a period where I was in my early twenties, I was married to a man. Um, There was a lot of stuff about myself I had not figured out yet. And I was making, I was starting to find myself feeling a little bit troubled because I was struggling with the decision actually about whether to have children. And I, I was married to someone who, you know, we got along together very well. And I didn't think that was the problem, but I had, I had a sense that I was, um, I felt very weird about that feeling that once you have kids, there's sort of an inertia there, your life, It sort of seemed like it's a good idea for your life to be what it should be before you have kids, just because, you know, kids are such an enormous investment of your time and just your whole self. And I wanted to feel like I was in the right place and that I was the person I was supposed to be before I started a family. And so I realized that before I could do that, I needed to... You know, I just, I needed to spend some time on myself and I needed to maybe look back at some stuff from my past and see if there was anything that I should have spent more time addressing that I hadn't, things I needed to pay more attention to that maybe I, I had a feeling I was kind of drifting through life. And so I, you know, I tend to be a very methodical person. Um, I, you know, I make a lot of spreadsheet enhanced decisions. (laughs) And so I think I literally had a spreadsheet for like things to figure out in my life. (laughs) So I, you know, I basically just had a list of like, okay, let's, let's see what I need to figure out. And it was, um, I eventually realized that well, wait a minute. Ever since I was about 16, I've had this thought in the back of my head that maybe when I get old enough, I am going to need to change my sex and go go stealth, as they say, and live as a man. And um, so there was there was a little bit of an embarrassment in the sense of like, wait, so that seems a little bit silly. Like, why why would why would you think that? But then not not act on it. Like that sounds pretty important. You know, like it just seems like there's a, there's a, there's a dissonance there, you know? And I think, I mean, it's hard to explain why I didn't, why I had a thought like that and then treated it with zero importance for about eight years and just kind of swam through my life, not even really thinking about it very much. But I think a lot of it was just repression. You know, um, I had no never- ability
0: to compartmentalize is pretty, uh, yes. pretty impressive. Yeah,
2: that's, that's a great that's actually uh, I think that that's the term that I was searching for. It was compartmentalization. And, you know, I think I had also when I initially was thinking of when I initially started thinking about that, which was when I was a teenager, I also had this sense that. Uh, I wasn't sure which way I wanted to go. And I felt like I would know when I was older. And so that was one of the reasons that I sort of allowed myself to compartmentalize and just push it into the back of my head because I felt like, okay, this isn't the time yet. And then that early twenties period, eventually I just hit some kind of tipping point and it felt like, all right, it's time. Let's like, it's go time, let's do this. And that's when I started, you know, really going through that decision-making process in earnest. And that was, it was definitely, I don't know whether me hitting around that age, whether I would have hit it some tipping point anyway and felt like I needed to address that, but I think it definitely was influenced by the fact that I I kind of wanted to move forward in my life and I felt like there was something that was causing me to, to stay at this standstill and I needed to figure out what I needed to resolve in order to keep moving forward. And a lot of that was you know sort of concentrated in this one specific decision about about children so i'm curious yeah, about uh, that
1: decision process that you that you went through like what what do you remember about that time of how you decided you know kind of went through, how did you go through that process of trying to figure out what would be the best course of action for you
2: well let's see i the first thing i did which is probably familiar to a lot of people is i went on the yeah. internet and you know, I just tried to find, you know, what spaces and communities I could find where people are trying to make these decisions and where people are talking about this stuff. So yeah, I mean I so oh yes, yeah, so there was this website called by and I think it still exists. Um I I remember just kind of I think trying to find it again out of just sheer curiosity maybe a year ago and I was there's like wow you guys have been around a while now.
0: But what what year was it that you found them?
2: Oh, this would have been I think around 2011.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: Yes. So I was probably 23 at the time. Okay. And so yeah, I had so one thing with me that was different from kind of anything else I've heard people talking about, about, you know, transgenderism or transsexuality or any of the other terms that people used for it is that I always waffled back and forth in this very strong way. So for me, um, maybe I should back up a little bit and kind of talk about what gender dysphoria was like for me as an experience, because I think that that, you know, what that experience was in a concrete way really influenced my trajectory in terms of how I tried to make the decision and so yeah, for me,
3: please.
2: yeah thanks um so for me starting around age 16 um i had you know what actually i think if it's okay i'll start with there was a very specific moment that was my first sort of like oh aha moment of thinking thinking that maybe i was a man in a woman's body or that i had you know the mind of a man in the body of a woman and that was actually, there was this, like this paper handout, like a pamphlet that I had gotten from a college um, local to me. I was in high school at the time, and this was from a college pride group. And it was supposed to be educational, and it went through the LGBT. It's like, what does L mean? What does G mean? And all those. And the first one, of course, L was lesbian. Um, I remember very distinctly that um, I had... At that time, a little bit of this growing and developing um, sort of this sense of wanting to express myself differently than other girls typically did. And I had a lot of anxiety about it, and I felt a great sort of sense of shame and secrecy around it. And it was something that I think I had often sort of associated with lesbians, but not in the sense of like having sort of this frank, direct knowledge of like, oh, there's this group of people who, you know, this is kind of a way that they express themselves and it's just a part of the world. You know, like that didn't exist for me. It was more like, you know, every once in a while I would hear somebody, somebody say something kind of mean about, you know, a gay woman that implied that maybe she's like kind of masculine or whatever. You know, I was, I was living in, you know, I was in the middle of North Carolina So it's the American Southeast, so that might have been part of it. Um, But anyway, so I'm going on this long trajectory. Thank you for for going through this long trajectory with me. But um, so, oh, so yeah, so in this panel, I got the L, lesbian. And the only thing I actually specifically remember about it is that it really emphasized that some people will say that, you know, that lesbians maybe on average are more likely to have sort of this masculine presentation and that you must not believe that because it's offensive to lesbians. And that, you know, lesbians, you know, on average are just as feminine as any other woman. And I remember, and, you know, it was kind of put like, if you don't believe this, you're homophobic. And that kind of lined up with the cultural messages I was getting from people who were actually homophobic because you know, the only time I ever heard this in reference to lesbians was in this sort of like snide, you know, like insulting comments. So anyway, I, I remember feeling a little bit of this weird sense of loss or disappointment in that. And that's something I actually still don't entirely know how to process. Because it sort of felt almost like I had this tiny little budding nascent thing. If I could have identified into that and said like oh I get that this kind of gives me this context for why I express myself in this way and then you know I saw this thing and they're like no you can't do that that's homophobic and there was this kind of like oh okay all right and it's funny to me because it on some level it makes me feel a little bit silly because of course like like any woman should be able to express themselves in a masculine way it shouldn't have to do with sexual orientation I guess and so and you know I always like I try and be very supportive of say women I know who are very masculine presenting who are bisexual or who or who are straight but it did feel like maybe there was there was something about like that sense of lesbian identity that I had like almost been kind of reaching for and then was like nope nope not for you
0: um. So, so were you? Um, so you kind of like identified that you you kind of felt masculine. You wanted to present ma- masculinely, and you you were sort of associating that with lesbianism. But were you thinking that you were first attracted to to girls, and therefore you felt uh, like uh, identified with the lesbian label, uh, or was it like like this is this is the um, the designation that'll allow me to express myself masculinely, and then that was taken away?
2: Um, you know at that time I identified as bisexual. I, um, you know, I basically, you know, when I was young, I, I actually had a period of time, you know, when I had been younger than that, where I identified as pre-sexual, which I still think is adorable. And I wish middle school kids would would pick that up now. Um, Basically like, Oh, I've never had a crush on anybody. And then one day I was, you know, sitting in a, Class in middle school and I was you know there was like a boy ahead of me and I was like oh his hair is very pretty and I was like oh I guess that means I like boys and then the next year I was sitting in band class and there was a girl next to me and I was like oh her hair is really pretty and I was like oh I guess I like girls and then basically from there I was just like oh okay I'm bisexual <laughs> so, she anyway.
1: like pretty hair anyway <laughs> <laughs> Hair sexual.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I will say, like in terms of my sexual orientation, so I do I do consider myself to be a lesbian. I feel like I can have a visual appreciation of some men who I can say, like, this man is visually attractive, but it's like that's as far as it goes for me with men. Whereas, um, you know, if whereas if I feel the same way as a woman, there can be sort of like a much deeper sort of significant feeling emotion around that. And then, you know, not to, not to get to, you know, PG 13 on the podcast, but if there's anything, anything going on that is, you know, adults related, then, um, that pretty much only works for me with women. So I consider Mm -hmm. myself on that basis, but at the time I hadn't figured all of that out. I, um, was self-labeling as bisexual and generally presenting in a very feminine kind of, you know, traditional way in general, which I did sort of feel like I got a kick out of because I felt like I got a lot of approval and praise for that. And I enjoyed that approval and praise, but then also, you know, doing things like going into department stores and like trying on men's button downs in like my secret little department store changing room and never telling anyone. And I would like, you know, I would like leave them in so that nobody would see me walk out with them. So nobody would be like, Oh, look, you know, look what she did. And then I would like feel bad because I was leaving a mess for somebody to clean up. So anyway, there was, it was like this very, this very furtive sort of secretive thing that started to feel almost like a little bit of a fixation. And in some ways, I feel like that way that I was kind of having these, yeah, like these ways of pursuing a masculine expression that was very secret and very compartmentalized actually. I end up resonating a lot with stories that I hear from male to female crossdressers because of that. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm I'm going on so many tangents. I'm going to need to bring it in. <laughs> so anyway, you
0: were going through that the uh, the acronym the, the LGBT. Yes, thank you. Thank yeah. you.
2: Um, so yeah, so so there was the L. I remember. So then I was like, all right, so lesbians are girly. I know this now. This is what the thing says. You know, I feel sad about this. I don't know why. Not going to think about it. Um, and then you know there's the G and there's the B, and then there's the T. And the T is where all the gender nonconformity is. And so basically, you know, it says, Well, if you are transgender, then that means that you are, you know, you have the mind of one sex in the body of the other sex. And you can tell that because you know you have this this inner sense it's a sense that you have in your head sort of like a special intuition that tells you that this is true and you can tell if you are transgender because by sort of you know searching in your mind and you search for this little special feeling in your mind and if you feel that special feeling then that means you're transgender. And if you are, then that means that because of the way your brain is, you will need to medically transition and live as the opposite sex. And that's the way to relieve like this distress that you may be going through. So, so yeah, that is, um, so that was my, you know, my education about the LGBT and I read that and I was immediately like, oh man, I wonder if I have the special feeling. And I kind of, you know, literally kind of sat back a little bit like, oh, what do I think? And I was like, oh, I do. I do. And immediately from there, it was like, oh, wow, I guess I just discovered I'm transgender and I'm going to need to figure out what to do about this. So that was me at 16. And, and that uh, was
0: about 2005, was it?
2: Yeah, just around. Yeah. 2004, 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah. And at the time, um, so then I very quickly sort of created my like my inner understanding for like, if I think, oh, I have this sort of feeling or I have this sort of inner experience, then that means that that is my male brain talking to me. Or if I have this other experience, then maybe that means I have a female brain or maybe an in-between brain. And I spent a lot of time kind of mulling over this and sort of playing with this in my head. Um, I was a very introspective person. And that when I think about that, that sort of fits the way that I would have gone, you know, gone through that thought process as a teenager. And so, yeah, I, I had that, that same time period, say that same year in high school, I feel like there was also a lot of ways that things were changing for me socially, you know, as, as boys and girls were becoming more separated in school as we were going through puberty that i actually feel like it had a strong influence on the way that i saw myself and the way that i interpreted these experiences i felt that i was having and some of that was um what am i thinking um so i had always been a very intellectual kid i i had always been like the absent-minded brainy kid and you know i that had always been perfectly fine for girls say in elementary school middle school you know, nobody has a problem with it. Um, Starting around in high school, as I was starting to, you know, explore things like taking college level philosophy courses, you know, science classes, things like that. um, I started to notice that the boys that I was hanging out with at school felt that that stuff was not for girls. And it wasn't just that they thought socially that that was not for girls. It was that they felt that men and women have different brains so that women are cognitively incapable of processing information on the level that's required for those for those academic fields. Um, and you know, some of this, it was always sort I think there was some of it that was almost sort of weirdly a blend of religion and science. that was a lot of like where messages, you know, like the messages that we would be getting or that I would hear around school about like what are the differences between boys and girls. And you know, a lot of, and you know, there'd be the sort of the thing of like, well, men were created in the image of God when were created as helpers for men. And, um, you know, also then this sort of thing of like men were designed to do all the smart stuff and women were designed to take care of children essentially. And so that, that really sort of put me off kilter. And it felt like I was really kind of missing that sense of being recognized for my intelligence that I had had my entire life up to that point, which for me as like the designated smart kid was a big part of my identity. So, you know, there was, um, anyway, I It's also relatable.
0: And it's, it's, it's very, it's a very similar trajectory that, that, um, we seem to, to find with, uh, it's, it's certainly very, very, um, familiar to me personally, but it's, it seems to be a a kind of a, a a pretty, pretty consistent theme with a lot of um, uh, uh, female to male transitioners or um, non-anyway, it's, it's it's, more conversations we have, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is, it all, it all lines up. Yeah, sorry, Um, go on, go on.
2: Yeah, no, and sorry, I think I should probably try and summarize that so I can get back to the thing that I'd already gone on a tangent on so that I can get back to the tangent before that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, So yeah, so I just I, I had this very, you know, almost almost this sort of visual, you know, I think I think I you know when people say that like some people think in words and some people think in pictures, I definitely think more in a visual a visual way. And so it feels like there was, I almost had this visual understanding um, of like, or like this sort of sensory understanding that's hard to explain about how I saw myself. And a lot of it involved sort of, you know, these like really embodying these concepts of like, I think that I'm intelligence. I think that I tend to be kind of a deliberate thinker. I like to be taken seriously. And all of those, all of those things, to me, like all of the messages in my environment were saying essentially that men are the people who embody those traits. And it was very hard for me to imagine kind of a person being a woman, you know, if I was to think of men and women as as being psychologically different, it would have been very difficult for me to imagine being a woman and embodying those traits. And I think that a lot of sort of that like that sort of concentrated sense of my understanding of those parts of myself. Um, It really feels like that sort of concentrated into this very particular feeling that I would have. And I started to call that feeling, Oh, that's feeling like a man. That's, you know, it's, those are man thoughts. Those are, it's my male brain talking to me. And it's, it was really kind of a head trip when I think about it. It's very difficult to explain. It almost feels a little bit synesthetic like I don't have synesthesia but kind of that idea of of having sort of a color or a shape or a sort of visual overlay that represents a thought or a concept um I'm not going to be able to explain it better than that but it feels like that was something I somehow experienced and that all of these these sort of ways that I felt about myself you know that I had I had you know these sort of mental states that I could name that those were, what those feelings were. And I started to call them my male brain. And that was me thinking like a man and being a man. So, so anyway, so that was 16. And I also sometimes would swing all the way over the other way. And I would feel very excited to be a woman. And I would be like, wow, this is great. And um, I hear a lot of other, like I hear a lot of desisters, like say people who were childhood desisters talking about at some point, you know, puberty, whacking them over the head with the puberty stick. And then suddenly they get like, what's so great about being a woman? I almost feel like at that same time of my life, I was getting sort of a version of that. And so I basically like had both of these things in in parallel in some ways. Mm. And I would like swing wildly back and forth in terms of which one I felt I was experiencing at the time in which I felt I identified with. And so to me, I was like, wow, I have an interesting man, woman, hybrid brain. All right. And I decided, well, you know, this sounds maybe like something that will kind of just solidify as I get older. I think I probably, I was taking some psychology classes at the time. I think I probably had run into that concept that your brain doesn't fully get to its adult state until your mid twenties. And so I think I was probably hanging on that a little bit as well. Like, oh, once I get to a certain age the swinging back and forth will naturally stop and it'll hit in one direction or the other. And then if it hits on the man's side, I will change my sex. And if it doesn't, then I won't. So so yeah, then I basically just shoved it to the back of my head and didn't do anything about it. Um, and yeah, so then that gets all the way back to then when I was, I, yeah, 22 or 23 and trying to figure out, all right, I need to figure this out so that I can kind of make sure that I'm at the place I need to be in my life. And that's when I started finding that that's when I found that there was the BiGender.net forum, which was specifically the place for people who have that swinging back and forth experience. And yeah, so that was, um, it was very interesting. Um, what am I thinking?
1: I wanted to go back just for, for a second, mm-hmm. if I can just, just, um, Absolutely. highlight a point you made earlier. You mm-hmm. said that you went through the, you know, the LGB and, and you said that the T is where all of the gender um, diversity is.
3: Yes. And
1: yes. I wanted to highlight that point because I think that's part of where we've gone horribly wrong in, in all of this. Like that, that, that the, because back in the it's, 80s, I mean, the LGB was well known for gender nonconformity, right? That yes. It was very much a, a, an era of celebration of gender nonconformity. And I, I kind of wonder, this is sort of a half baked idea. I'm talking off the top you know top of my head, but I think, I think the AIDS crisis had a, had a lot to do with, yeah. with, um, a crisis in the LGB community in general. And I think it really shook up the community understandably, um, in ways that, that I think the community, um, wanted to establish a place for itself in mainstream society by basically shedding off that gender nonconformity, mm. and because prior to the aids crisis it wasn't uncommon for very effeminate gay men to date very masculine straight or bi men
3: okay
1: and and the aids crisis really changed that and you know because now suddenly bi and straight men people were afraid of, of getting aids and mm. and I hope somebody really studies that that trajectory and, and the impact that AIDS had on the gay and lesbian community, yeah. because that does seem to be this, this time where um, there was a lot of pressure for gay men to be as masculine as possible. And, and, for, mm. and then you started to see lesbians, you know, more and more feminine presenting. Mm. And I do think that's really contributed to this, to the T getting bigger and bigger and bigger is a lot of gay and lesbian people seem to deny that gender nonconformity is an a, kind of an, an intrinsic part of a homosexual sexual orientation, not for every individual, but there is more gender nonconformity among gay and lesbian people than than there is straight people. And that's, I mean, that's been studied and, and well documented. And, and I think a lot of gay and lesbian people experience that kind of cross-sex identification as children, but there's so much societal pressure to... Repress that and, and shed that mm-hmm. off by the time we're adults and to the, mm-hmm. so there are a lot of gay and lesbian people today that are saying we need to save all these trap, these gay kids from being transed. Yeah, because they're dem- these kids are demonstrating gender nonconformity and everyone's labeling them trans, but there's this barrier that they don't want to acknowledge the gender nonconformity in themselves. And that, that, so that's a really counterproductive message to deny, no, I'm not, you know, gay people aren't gender nonconforming, but stop, but stop transing the the, the gay kids. It's like we, the oh, gay lesbian community yeah. needs to start owning its own gender nonconformity if we want to actually create an argument that we shouldn't be transing all these gay kids because they're showing gender nonconformity.
2: Yes, I think, yes, I, I agree very much. I think that that's really insightful and interesting. Um, it's also very interesting to me having now been in the lesbian community for a while is that I will simultaneously hear from masculine presenting lesbians that they feel ostracized for not being feminine Um, you know that that as a lesbian they should be feminine and I will hear from feminine feminine presenting lesbians that they get ostracized because as a lesbian they are being too feminine and it it kind of yeah, it feels a little bit like, I mean, clearly there needs to be room for both. And there. I think also clearly there needs to be room for acknowledgement that there is a strong tie between homosexuality and gender nonconformity and that it's not going to express itself in the same way in every person, but the pattern is there. And it's something that we see expressed culturally. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely.
1: And it gets expressed more in some cultures and less in other cultures, mm-hmm. But yeah. I think it's, it, even in our culture, it was there and then gets, you know, like little gay boys that are dressing up in mummies, you know, yeah. dresses and stuff are told yeah. that's not appropriate male behavior. So in cultures I, where that's, they're not getting that message, we yes. tend to see a lot more gender nonconformity in gay and lesbian people.
2: Yes, I think you're right. Something that, there's there's something that that makes me think of also, which um, there's it feels like there is such this psychological tie that probably comes in at this young age when you're learning what's appropriate and what's not, you know, according to adults and the people around you, of that that expression of your own gender nonconformity being very closely tied with this sort of feeling of shame. And I think for myself, I think a lot about, you know, as a kid, and you know, I think that there was something else about this that was very compartmentalized in terms of, say, There was a girl in my class who was, you know, essentially she was a butch lesbian. She, you know, wore boys clothes. She was out as gay. Um, Actually, we dated for like a week in high school and um, she was awesome. But um, somehow the fact that everybody was fine with her and she had plenty of friends, it would that did not lead me to come to the conclusion that I could do that if I wanted to, you know, there was a massive mental barrier there. And I still don't entirely understand why, like, why did I not logically come to that conclusion? Clearly, there was kind of an emotional something going on that was blocking me from doing that. And, um, you know, sort of this, I think about it also because when I think about, you know, the way that I was very, you know, traditionally feminine in public and then would have sort of these private moments of like dressing up in boys clothes, things like that. Like very similar to the way that a male to female cross-dresser describes their initial experiences. And there was something that felt a little bit sort of sexual about it. And it was also something that felt a little bit compulsive about it, like this sort of feeling of fixation. And there was also this intense feeling of this sort of shame and secrecy and like, Oh, this is my secret. And I kind of you, wonder. Yes.
0: Are you familiar with the term autoandrophilia?
2: I am. I actually, okay. I think that that's a good, um, yes. I think that that's a good description for what I was doing as auto Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it just kind of, it makes me wonder if I had, you know, grown up in a culture where I saw, you know, masculine presenting women just being treated as as normal and they were around and they were available as role models or just as examples of like, yes, this is fine and, you know, you can do this. I kind of wonder if I wouldn't have had that sort of like that intensity of feeling about it and that feeling of it being like this weird fixation, you know, because the way that I experienced it almost felt right, almost like a little bit fetishistic. And I kind of feel like maybe that that was just it getting warped a little bit because there was no, like, I couldn't see a route for, like, healthy public expression. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. That
2: seems yeah, I common. think when there's
0: the shame and secrecy involved, it could kind of get to that level. I think what so.
1: Saying, yeah, that seems pretty common. Like, the more people we talk to, like, Ernie said earlier, the more people we talk to, the more we're seeing sort of themes mm-hmm. play out. And one of the themes that I think we're seeing, too, is in people's stories is that there is something internal and important that's wanting expression. Yes. And that is an, an authenticity in a, in a sense that, that there is something kind of real and important to the person that they're wanting to express and wanting to be seen that is valid and and true, which is, you know, why I think transition for some people can feel authentic. Like I feel like an authentic masculinity inherent in my Mm -hmm. sexual orientation is got it got expressed and I didn't have to Mm -hmm. repress that anymore um so that is real and true but that's different than that's different than there being a true trans
3: so Mm -hmm. I don't know
1: exactly what I'm trying to say but there is something authentic that's trying to be expressed that maybe doesn't have a language or it doesn't know how to express itself in any other way
2: yes I think I, I I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, and thinking about that sort of expression, I feel like for myself there was sort of another layer to it, which is something that I I see in a good number of other disisters who are kind of people in what we think of as the ROGD cohort. You know, which is I had I had this intense desire to express somehow. Like I felt inside, like there was something wrong. I felt a sense of something. There was something about me that made me different. And also that there just was sort of something troubling and almost, almost that sort of feeling when people say that they feel broken, I felt a little bit broken and I felt like I needed, I I remember, you know, from pretty much from that same age, from 16, having this feeling um, very distinctly that at some point I will come across an authority figure or some sort of information, probably somewhere in the realm of science that will give me a name for the way that I'm, best, the way that I am different from other people and the way that I am kind of uniquely messed up. And that once I am given that label for like, this is this type of person you are, and this is why you are this way, that it would fix it basically. And, you know, I don't know why I thought just getting the label would fix it, but it was almost like that was more important than the the cure. Oh, There also was an element attached of like, oh, well, whoever knows what this is, they also will know what to do about it. And I, I think that that came, I mean, there could, it could be that some of that came just from, you know, these sort of struggles of shame around sexuality and around gender expression. It also. I had, um, a little bit of a early trauma history, which I, you know, I won't go into. It was also, I'll say it was secondhand trauma. It was, you know, well, I mean, I know literally everybody feels like they have to say this, but lots of people had it a lot worse. It was not like, it was not like big trauma. It was like small T trauma. Um, but in any case, I, um, you know, I think also as a result of that, I had, you know, dissociative episodes from a very young age, like as young as seven and, um, I think, you know, pretty much everything I've read about, especially childhood trauma, that it does create that sort of feeling that there's there's something inside you that is sort of it's different and broken, and you need to find some way to communicate about this to other people, and it's really difficult. And I think that um, this is something I've heard from many people that like we just had this certainty inside that there was something wrong and different and that we needed to find the word for it and that eventually we found the word for it and the word was trans. Um, And that, that very much matches my experience of that. Um,
3: Sorry.
0: Well,
2: well, so it's interesting. I mean, I didn't have that, that, that
0: experience, like feeling like I was broken and there was like something I had to find that would answer it. But, but that, but I do hear that a lot with like the, with the, um, with what we call the the ROGD cohort where it's like, like trans or gender dysphoria I've described it as like this black hole that can kind of just kind of absorb anything that that comes near it right so any sort of internal uh, discomfort any anything can just it can easily be funneled into the, the language of trans or dysphoria but we were talking I was also reading and I'm not sure if it's like the bit of the memoir that you that you sent over or yeah. if it was in the psychology today article where you were talking about like basically once you became aware of the concept of trans or gender dysphoria that's when you developed when you became became like hyper fixated on the symptoms of gender dysphoria. And that's something that obviously we see in, in the, the ROGD. And I definitely had that as well. we, we talked about like, there's this kind of gender dysphoria, there's this kind, there's ROGD, there's AAP. Like, I feel like so much of it is just completely fluid and overlapping. Um, yeah. And can, can kind of like be, be cap- camped in different, in different categories, but yeah, I want, if you'd want to talk about that, like what, what you called the sex dysphoria and um, like became, became hyper fixated on it once you basically had, had a, had a designation for that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I'd also be, I'd be interested to hear, you know, how you found some commonality in that too, but yeah. So I, um I think I'll try and do another thing of those things where I back up and give a little background but I'll try and not have it be a 10 minute long tangent um so I yeah so like like I mentioned I had, had um dissociative episodes starting from the age of at the very least eight years old because I remember having one on my eighth actually no from the very at, at the very least age seven because I remember having one on a hayride and on my eighth birthday and i remember distinctly having the feeling of like oh here's another one of these and already kind of having my private process for managing it and making sure that no one else around me would notice um so anyway i had what would be considered what would be called depersonalization and derealization episodes which is it's essentially just this kind of trippy thing that goes on in your head that for an adult it would kind of sound like what you might expect you get when you take mushrooms it's kind of like this this feeling of like my vision feels different it feels like it's being run through some kind of a filter or like i'm kind of separated from it in some way um you know what? i saw a web comic talking about dissociation that had the best description i've ever heard which is that when you're kind of in your normal life it feels like say you in your mind like you're in a room and you're looking through a wide open door at the world and then dissociation is like you are moved to the back of the room and the door is you're. you can see only the little door on the other side of the room. Um, you're kind of, you're kind of stuck there in your head. And anyway, um, it was, there was something about it that was very sensory, like all of the ways that my senses would work would change. And I built up this whole sort of weird little pretend game mythology around that as a child, it was like, it involved aliens and stuff. I won't go into it. It won't be good podcast material, <laughs> but, um, that stuff stopped happening for me at the same time as I started acquiring what I started to term gender dysphoria. And when that stuff, I would say it pro- that stuff probably stopped happening like a little bit prior and it was really stressing me out. There was something I think kind of related to saying like having that feeling of being different. I tied it very much to having these dissociative experiences and i thought of them as sort of something that like that made me feel special it made me feel like it was kind of expressing that there was something different about me and eventually they started going away and i was like oh no how do i bring it back what's like i don't like this and i would do things like you know write my name down over and over and stare at myself in the mirror because it could get me like a little bit dissociated and then eventually that stopped working and I was like, well, shit, I guess I'm a normal person now. <laughs> like, I know it sounds, it sounds terrible, but as a 16 year old, that is kind of how I felt about it. And then I think probably within that same year, right? So then I got the pamphlet with like, okay, so this is what transgender is. And then I was like, oh, man feelings. Yeah, I guess I I could see I have that. I know what those feelings feel like. And I started being flooded with all these really interesting sensory experiences related to basically the sex characteristics of my body. And I do feel like it was a pretty clean replacement in some ways for my previous dissociative experiences. And I don't know enough about, you know, like I'm not a psychology person and I don't know enough about kind of what counts as like dissociation, what counts as body dysmorphia in terms of like, if you're just having weird weird sensory experiences you know but it felt like it It felt like there was something like like they were in like they were coming from the same part of my brain is kind of what it feels like to me now so yeah i would have essentially what i started doing was i would sort of i was not connected to any sort of transgender community or any resources about what being transgender was um and i i basically started coming up with my own conclusions about like, this is, this is something I think a transgender person would feel, do I feel that? And I would check it's like, how about now? How about now? And then eventually I would actually start to feel whatever that thing was. And I, now I kind of, I don't even know if some of those things are the sort of things that people were saying at the time a transgender person were, would feel at this point, it was very self-contained for me. This was like a thing I was doing in my head you know and um so one of them would be i mean i guess you probably are all familiar with the term phantom penis so which i i'm glad my my first ever experience of being on youtube i get to you know that that feels a little (laughs) like hi
3: guys (laughs) (laughs) anyway
2: i'll have to think about who i send this to and who i don't send this to um But yeah you know so i would have this almost sort of hallucinatory feeling of having a penis of um having a flat chest and also very specifically of being taller and sort of broader shoulders and sort of having a male build and that was also a big deal for me at the time i was extremely jealous of my male classmates who were getting tall and i was not getting tall and it was because i was a girl and it was stupid and also they would start, you know, the boys kind of started to know, so, hey, we're taller now. And they would start doing things like pick a girl up and, you know, she doesn't like it. And it was like, ah, and, you know, they they'd kind of like bully us a little bit in that way. And so it just sort of felt like, like, ah, like I should, I'm supposed to be one of them, you know? And um, so, yeah, so I would have these sort of feelings like, oh, I feel like I'm taller than I really am. I feel like my shoulders are like out to here. I feel like I have a penis. I feel like I don't have breasts, things like that. And sometimes it would just be, most of the time, actually, I'd say it was just a completely neutral feeling. And then sometimes it would come with this sort of feeling of physical discomfort and this kind of like squirmy, icky feeling because of the fact that my body was not actually the way that I was imagining. Mm -hmm. And so when I I say sex dysphoria, that's essentially a a description of what I'm talking about when I said my sex dysphoria, which I actually am. I mean, I feel like this is something I should, you know, have done a little research on, but it's also really hard to do research on, is like how much that actually is the same or different from what the average trans person means when they say sex dysphoria. Like, I don't, I'm not even sure. So. That's, you know, you know
0: I, for years, so I've, you know, had the exact same, uh, I, I think you could describe it as like spiders are tingly, and I, I didn't have that experience, just a hyperfixation and just like this, like, crawl out of my skin, got to change it feeling, um, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, and so I always assumed that's what dysphoria was for everybody, and so, oh. so what you're describing is, I if I would have heard heard that five years ago like yep you are definitely a trans person just like me but it was like you know like three uh three years ago or so as I really got back involved in the in the trans community and, and realizing that most people are describing gender dysphoria in a very different way than that and it usually has more to do with kind of like um like like social insecurities and things like that um uh it it, it does seem it seems and I wonder you know when we talk about like uh that there's sort of like uh I don't know if it would be considered a psychic epidemic, but it's like we kind of experience the, we have, we have this, the, the psychosomatic symptoms of whatever, like, however the condition is defined at the time we, we encounter it. Um, I don't, I I don't know how much of that was like externally imposed upon me or how much was already there. And then I just intensified with, with what I was, was reading about. This is again, like totally half-baked, just, just like uh off the top of my head talking about this right now. But um but I do think a lot of it is like is like you 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 manifest the symptoms of whatever explanation you've come across at whatever what those symptoms are at the time. Um again, I don't think I'm articulating this well at all.
2: Uh, no, but, I think that's yeah. perfect. I think that I think you articulated it exactly. Yes. That's I I feel like that now very much. That wasn't a concept that you were taught. That's not a concept that they, that was common that people understood is this idea that you could have feelings in your body that like your body was producing because of something that you were going through mentally, you know, and right, like you said, psychosomatic. So I, I frame, I think of my, of my past sex dysphoria now very much as a psychosomatic thing. And I do think that I essentially was, there's also this thing of that sort of thought checking, which is very much sort of this compulsive thought, this rumination thing of like, oh, do I have this Do I have this feeling? Do I have this feeling? And if you do that over and over enough, and I kind of think if something in your mind feels like this can be a way for you to express something and to get something you need and to have an outlet, an, a needed outlet in some way, then eventually, essentially mm-hmm. I made it real by thinking about it enough. Um, and yeah i you know what i feel like those are the sorts of conversations that i was thinking and hoping at that age at that age 22 that i would find in say like transgender support groups and nobody nobody talks about any of that and it feels like dysphoria was just treated as like a black box like yeah nothing goes in nothing goes out in the sense of like you don't you don't try and break it up into its component parts you don't try and think about what exactly the experience is and how it might relate to other types of experiences that other people have had, it's unless, unless they are also trans and you're just saying you both have dysphoria. It's like there was no, there was no intellectual pursuit and I really wanted that.
1: I thought, um, yeah, I, I always found that kind of strange about the trans community. I mean, you, you would think that because I always just assumed that every every other trans person had the same experience as me. I, you know, I had this ex- experience that I eventually found the word gender dysphoria for, and I assumed, well, everyone who transitions had that experience, and, but nobody was talking about it. And I thought that was strange. Like, you would think that, okay, if these are my people and we all had the same experience, why wouldn't we be able... To talk about it and and share our stories with each other, but I mean n- now knowing what I know, it's because not everyone had that experience, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's it's taboo to actually open up and talk about what was really going on for us internally and and socially, because then it would be be very quickly apparent that what we call trans is like a million different things that that we're mm-hmm. all kind of slapping the same solution onto.
2: Oh, that's really interesting. I'd actually love to hear more about. Kind of how how you have maybe seen that in in trans communities or like kind of like what the different things are that are getting collectively put under this umbrella and kind of how it works for people to not talk about that because i i just i imagine you've been in trans communities a lot longer than like the little blip of a couple years that i was you know that was 10 years ago now so i don't know do you feel like it's like that's still the case now
1: i think it's yeah i think Perhaps even more so because I think people, trans people, are feeling the the political pressure. Um, so I mm-hmm. think even even more so. I think people are pretty sealed off about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, just, it's it's interesting. Like, I, and every so often, people will um, will sort of say something and then they'll clam up again. Like I've heard people mm-hmm. over the years say, "Well, I." I've never had gender dysphoria and I lied my way through the assessments, but then they, but then they realize, oh shit, I shouldn't have said that. And then they, they close off again and they don't unpack the full story. So, I mean, that's part of my motivation for having, you know, for having people on our podcast to talk about these things. Like I'm, it's been helpful for me to hear people's stories too, because I've been 15 years in a community without ever really being able to just talk openly and honestly about what that experience is like, which has been, helpful for me and and I'm also just very fascinated and interested in hearing other people's stories.
2: Yeah, that sort of that thing of hearing people say something and then they clam up, I I saw that too sometimes in my in-person transgender support group that I went to when I was living in Sacramento. Um, So this would have been that 2011, 2012 time period.
0: And you were saying that was primarily like middle-aged Uh, female to male, excuse me, I'm sorry, male to female transitioners, correct?
2: Yes, I stuck out like a thumb. They were really sweet. They were so welcoming. Um, And I actually feel like, you know, I, I basically landed in a group of very sort of, you know, I might, I'm not sure if I'm using the right terms, but very, what I think of as like classic old school transsexuals. And I kind of feel like that was exactly where I should have been because they were awesome. Um, they, you know, there was, I remember, especially, you know, some of the, you know, the older trans women who were leading the group, I think they were probably in their fifties. I mean, I never asked, but um, I, I remember this one, you know, trans woman who like, cause I was trying to explain this to people. Cause I still, I was still in that mentality of kind of looking for the authority figure who was going to give me the magic label that fixes me. And I was very hell bent on these people being the ones. And they told me over and over that they're not, which was so mentally healthy of them. You know, it's like, you know, I would say like, hey, I have this, 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 and and this is exactly how it feels. And which one of you can tell me if that means I'm really trans or not? And they're like, none of us. That's not how it works. You, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about whether this is right for you there's nobody who's ever going to be able to give you a right answer. You should take it very seriously because the medical side of this stuff is no joke. And you are essentially going to have to be your own authority figure in a sense is, is what I was getting from them. And I, I still appreciate that very much because I felt like it was a very healthy approach. And um, I think that if I had been in, kind of a, the more modern type of group now, that I would not have gotten such a healthy perspective on it from the groups. Um, I also remember one of the, you know, one of the older trans women who I was trying to, you know, do this and explain this to me. And I remember her looking at me and going, what you sound like to be is a cross <laughs> it And and then her telling me like that, yeah, there's a cross-dresser community in town too. And they have, you know, there's some overlap with the transsexual group and I should go and see if, see what they're about. And like, I never did. I don't remember why, but maybe I would have, you know, learned something interesting if I had, um, but yeah, there was, um, so yeah, that was, that was my experience of, you know, that was for the short period of time that I guess you could say I had transgender community. That's, that's who it was. Um, and I feel like they were very kind and I felt like they took very good care of, you know, this 20 something who came in, you know, wanting them to give me magic answers and they didn't do it. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I think you're right. I that it
1: probably would be quite different today. At least that's, those are the stories that we hear, right? Is, is that people, um, mm-hmm. when you talk, when you hear people talk about what, what things were like on different groups and forums that, um, that they there's it's almost like people are encouraged to be trans now
2: yes and that was something that i felt like i saw in that group a little bit and i did i did see some of sort of that encroachment of you know the, the sort of thought policing this sort of thing of like there's the correct way you think about this and you know you don't step out of line um, oh, that sort of clamming up ex- thing you mentioned, like I remember one time, you know, people were kind of going around in the circle talking about their experiences and, you know, there would be, you know, most of the time, like somebody, once somebody's confessed something, you know, you find something encouraging or nice to say about it, or you kind of find somebody to support them. And then I remember, you know, one of the older, you know, male to female trans people saying, well, I kind of wonder if I hadn't you know, if I hadn't had, you know, such and such terrible experience when I was a young boy, maybe I would have been more comfortable with my penis and I wouldn't have felt like I had to get rid of my penis. And every there was just like dead silence in the room, like you could cut the silence with a knife and nobody's it was the only thing anybody said it was the only kind of thing where that anybody had expressed where like no one offered a response, no one offered support. It was literally just like a few seconds of awkward silence, and then somebody else, like, said something on a completely different topic, like to get us moving again. And um, so, yeah, I remember seeing that and feeling like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, there it were... sounds like a,
0: that was a very real confession, and maybe people weren't quite ready to go that uh, that deep about it. Is that what you what you think? Like. What was the, the tone of the rest of the kind of requests for support was it more about like being discriminated against and stuff like that
2: i think no i think a lot of people were talking about body discomfort but it was oh, okay. um, in more general sense i mean i do think that there is a little bit of a thing where if you talk about say anything related to childhood sexual trauma you just dropped a bomb in the middle of the room like you know nobody nobody knows how to respond to that so there could have it could have just been that kind of a thing but also, you know, I think that there was something about, like the way that I interpreted it at the time, I remember, which maybe was correct or maybe was incorrect, was that this person is questioning like the framework for it. This person is questioning the idea that uh, this is just is something in your brain that you're born with, which was-
3: Right, right.
2: And if you, And this person was maybe saying, well, maybe my dysphoria came from somewhere else and that that was not something anyone had ever expressed in the group before. And so at the time that I thought that that's where the awkwardness was coming from, but there's all sorts of other places it could have come from too.
0: That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. If if it's within within those groups, I've been so long out of of those where like the kind of the context is is we all have this this shared condition, and and when somebody kind of puts the crack in that with their experience, could be yeah yeah yeah. Okay, I'm with you.
2: Yeah. Do you do you feel like you like do you have sort of an interest or a need? Sorry to like to talk about this stuff with other people that like, do you have trans communities where you're able to do that? Or maybe other non-trans communities or places that I don't even, are I'm not even aware of? I guess, like, because I feel like, like, it definitely feels like we have some commonalities and, you know, in our background and experience with this stuff. And I just know that I always have, like, I, I still feel like I enjoy when I can just talk it out with somebody in it in like that sort of detail and in a way that's very frank and I don't know I guess I was I'm just curious like it, it would I would I would hope that you have a place that you can do that you know as much as you need to and I'm just wondering if that exists or not oh it's right here oh <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's
3: right <for> <laughs>
0: Um, uh, I mean, so so for me, um, when when I kind of first embraced, you know, what I called a gender dysphoria and sought transition, I, I kind of I just drank the juice and didn't question too much about it. Like I didn't I didn't um, I didn't get too much in the weeds um, about. Uh, what it all meant, where it could have come from, it was very much like, oh, I have this experience. That means I'm trans. This is what trans people do. This is, you know, it's very much like, just, just kind of a checklist sort of, sort of process. And it was only in about 2017 when I got wind of just how, of, of that, that being trans isn't one thing. And I, and I, do, that's when I started getting into um, what, where the conversation had gone, what people were talking about, um, and that's when I kind of just got um, a bit, a bit. When I when I when the, dis, the, dis, the disillusionment uh, entirely fell around me, and then so I've been just I was looking all around for people to be having the conversations that we're having here, and they didn't exist. They weren't they weren't around. Like all there was 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 the kind of groups that you're talking about, where it's like you just you just you know accept that people are trans, you affirm their experience, and the support is around diminishing discrimination and around like embracing people and affirming people not about what's actually going on in your head what were your early life experiences that that led to the conclusion you're at now um so yeah that's why this I like what we're doing here because this is exactly what I was looking for back in 2017 when it all came crumbling around me and I was like this isn't what I you know like and so so I'm glad that we're able to provide that you know that basically what what I what I wished existed so
2: yeah I think that's awesome and you know You all I think mentioned that you're starting up a forum so I'm Mm -hmm. actually really excited about that. Um, Yeah, you know, I think there's, I remember kind of the first time this, you know, both on this bigender.net forum, internet forum that I had been on and also in my in person group, having such a strong sense of the people that I was around in those groups kind of being my people in a special way that I did not find, say, at work with my coworkers or with my family. And I mean, you know, I I love my family and I have, you know, a special connection to them that's different, but I think, um, I don't know exactly what that, I still don't entirely have a perfect label or a way to put my finger on that, but it felt like I would sort of meet people who are very thoughtful and sort of, in some ways, think in the same patterns as me. And I just found that, like, I made friends really easily in those groups. And I got along with people really easily. And we would often kind of have, like, little interests in common that would be hard to find elsewhere. And it would seem to pop out of nowhere. And I I really appreciated that. And I haven't entirely found that since I've left that community. And that's something I think about, actually, when I've been in the transitional groups, it actually also feels the same way with that. And so, I don't know, I'm wondering if that, if either of you have ever felt that way, or if you think that there's, you know, if that's, was it part of your experience as well? Like, did you go into trans groups and kind of feel like, like, hey, this is, this is my people, and it's really cool. It I just- didn't, I
0: well, so, so I, I've, I've sought that. I've, I've definitely got that from, from other online communities, not so much the trans community. I didn't, again, I didn't spend that much time in it until I fell out of it and then okay. came back as a bit of an anthropologist, you know, later on. But, um, but I, I, I know what you're describing because I've, I've always been drawn to kind of niche internet communities to kind of just be obsessive about one thing and okay. um, that, that you can't talk about with, with other people. And one th- uh, that, there's a theme that's that seems to always come up in these conversations and that is um autism spectrum traits Mm -hmm. i don't know what you think about that but like a lot of the things that you're describing are very much the things that we're kind of like we find in like trans and detrans is this very Mm -hmm. much this internal this intense internal um experience that seems to is like this this common line between the trans and detrans experience and i think i think in the in the in the end we're going to see that that um yeah autism spectrum traits are the like the the, the 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 commonality between, free. Well, oh, th- I'd say. Well, I think a lot of the there, there's a there's certainly a social incentive to transition now or to identify as trans, that mm-hmm. that could sweep up anybody, any any kind of any teenager essentially any young person. There's there's social incentive to identify as trans, um, so there's that that cohort that, that could be separate. But I, I really think that a lot of what we call gender dysphoria is basically a a, 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 a sensory. Uh, experience that's that's pretty common on the uh with people with uh autism spectrum traits I've never been diagnosed and I didn't even think much about it until I've been having these conversations and hearing all these people who have diagnoses and going oh oh yeah me too you know
2: yeah yes I actually think that that's very true and you know so like when I think about when I think about like detransitioner spaces that I've been in, probably half the people will identify as being somewhere on the autism spectrum. Um, I I was in at an in-person detransitioner retreat the first time that I had a long conversation with someone who, you know, was I believe self-diagnosed autistic, and where I started to kind of process thinking about like, well, that matches my experience also, and it's something where I don't you know, like the, the word identify, like the phrase identify as is so overused. I, I hate that I'm using it now, but I don't identify as autistic per se. And I think some of that is like, I have a good number of those traits. And I do think like in the way that I think, the way I process information, um, I also think like you, exactly like you said, like there's a sensory aspect. And I think that's something about sex, the, the way that my sex dysphoria came in as a teenager. I think that they're probably was something a little bit autistic about that experience. Um, maybe, I don't know. Um, but I, I feel like,
0: I also think that it could be, it could, I could be falling along the lines of the whole psychic epidemic thing again, where, where now ASD is just the new GD that I'm just throwing things into as well. So there's, oh, there's um, that to keep in mind. That's
2: so true. I've done that with so many psychiatric labels. That's right. actually part of why, I tend to not- The like, hesitation, yeah, yeah. Yes, I tend to hesitate very much about self-diagnosing because it's like, well, you did that before and it didn't go so great. I've, I've done it with ADHD as well. Um, you know, kind of getting really hardcore into like looking up lists of traits people have that who are ADHD and me being like, oh my God, I have all of them. And usually like from each of these little, you know, and in each of these labels also has their own, community attached to it, especially online, where you can go and you can find people who have these common traits with you and it's, it's really exciting. And also those are people who have sort of this collective knowledge about, well, how do we work on this? How do we have good lives? And so, so yeah, I think I've kind of done done a similar thing with that. I, I feel very resistant to giving myself psychiatric labels, which is probably why I don't identify as, you know, being autistic or even probably ADHD and um i also kind of feel like if i had been given some of those labels as a kid i don't i think things actually would have been worse for me rather than better because i also have a lot of things that i can learn to be good at if i work at hard enough that are the things that you're told that you can't do if you have those labels and i feel like i'm glad that i had the mental flexibility and freedom to maybe just work a little harder and allow those to be things I could sort of fall in love with over time, even though they're very contrary to what I think an autistic or an ADHD person would do. And so it it feels like I, it feels like I, I tend to shy away from giving myself psychiatric labels because I want to retain the mental flexibility to like, to use all of the parts of my brain, including the ones that I might otherwise think aren't there or are messed up somehow if I adhere to the label too much. That's a really
0: good point. That's a really good perspective.
2: Oh, thanks. So, but yeah, I definitely think you're right that I think a lot of the reason that I would sort of meet so many people who I just vibed with immediately and it was so cool and interesting was there was this office inspection undercurrent. And especially with the in-person group, I think it was something that I would certainly notice more of like having that natural commonality, with the folks who were a little, a little like younger for the group, like they were still older than me, but they were on the younger end for that, for the group. So like, say, you know, maybe around age 40, like late thirties, early forties. And it could also be that I had more in common with them because we were closer in age, but it felt like that was, there were, there were a couple people in the group who were, excuse me they were much more gung-ho about like oh renee needs to get on testosterone yesterday that kind Mm -hmm. of a thing Mm -hmm. and that was coming from the younger folks in the group and then the older folks were the ones being like hey hey let's take this seriously and you should you know think for yourself and you know come to a thoughtful decision so that was a big contrast that i noticed and um yeah. It seems
0: like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, like, kind of vicarious validation that goes on where it's like, if, if my friend is doing this or more people are, it kind of, like, validates my decision, you know, like, the more...
2: Yes, there seems to be, and, you know, this is a part where there's something that I feel like it was a very big part of my framework and my decision-making process that I feel like I see it quite a bit in other people or maybe in the community as a whole or at least the ones I was in, but I also... You know, I also don't. There's a risk of projection. There's a risk of like, oh, this is how it happened for me. So of course, like you all were experiencing the same thing, you know. Um, Which is, I've actually, I've, I've started kind of started calling it broken leg syndrome because I don't, because I'm sure that there's an actual psychology term for this, but I just don't know. But I definitely. So through all of this, I absolutely like. I still had this sense that I had had since I was very young that. Of seeking an authority figure who is going to validate my suffering and explain it to the world, essentially. Like there was going to be somebody who was going to say, like, I know what type of like what type of person you are. That is why you have these experiences and why this you feel this way and why you have this very unique type of suffering. And then through that, that will explain it to other people. It'll explain it to my friends, my family, whoever. And I, I just like I really wanted that. And I wanted it to be as scientific and medical as possible, because to me, that would be the thing that people would understand and respect the most. And it would sort of also, I think, allow me to respect myself the most in a way. Um, you know, I kind of, it was a little bit of that feeling of like, like, oh, I'm sick in some way. I have there's something, there's something going on. And kind of like, like I wanted to have, I I remember feeling very much like it would have been incredibly gratifying and validating for me to have some type of psychiatric label, but even more than that, um, like something that was medicalized. So for instance, when I was a teenager, I had this almost this weird longing to be diagnosed with a, like an intersex condition, which um, I think was kind of my way of saying like, I feel like I'm different in some way. That difference is somehow related to boys and girls and the difference between boys and girls. And it felt kind of like if I had that, oh, that would be like the most exciting, gratifying feeling to learn that I had an intersex condition. And I also would notice this and have a little, even as a teenager, I would be a little bit self-aware that that's kind of messed up. And that, that's not how that works, you know? And so that was this, so that kind of created this very confusing kind of like going in these little shame circles of like, you know, I would be in an abnormal psychology class, which like I was so psyched to take an abnormal psychology class, cause I was like, well, this seems like the perfect place for me to figure out what's wrong with me. And, you know, kind of fantasizing that eventually we would cover something that we would realize it was me, you know? And when we w- and we went over, you know, um, intersex conditions in that. And I was immediately struck like, oh my God, I'm sure I have this one. And I, you know, like would re- run back from the class and, you know, Google it. And then I learned like, oh, well, people who have this don't menstruate and I do menstruate, so I don't have this. And I was like, so sad and i remember kind of feeling like wow you are really weird and messed up because why do you want to have a medical condition and but it just it felt like it would it felt like if somebody has a medical condition no one is ever going to doubt the validity of that person's suffering and that 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 this is something that is should be taken seriously and um So anyway, so I feel like I really was carrying that into my exploration of gender dysphoria. And I was, you know, so for instance, I went to my doctor and my doctor, you know, ran a hormone screening panel for me and my hormones came back normal and I was kind of disappointed. And I was like, why don't I want my hormones to be normal? And, you know, like I kind of, I wanted a medical answer and that to me felt like it would be it almost felt like there's this hierarchy that like if i had a medical diagnosis that was the best and if not i would settle for a psychiatric diagnosis and then if it just had to be one of those things of like oh renee just needs to learn how to be herself woo woo then i was like you know
0: it, it, it sounds very much like you were you were drawn to the it's a hardware problem right yes. like not a software problem
3: yeah
2: yeah i wanted i wanted it to be a hardware problem and i think that that came from this very natural sense that that would cause others to respect and understand my problem and have empathy for me. And I think that really looking for empathy and that, that felt like the route that, that would allow me to get it. I, when I think about the ways that I tended to think about things, I think if I had been transitioned, if I had transitioned, I would have been a hardcore transmedicalist. <laughs> so, <laughs> cause that was like, that was like my mindset at the time, you know, uh-huh. but, um,
1: that reminds me of something that, that Helena said when we interviewed her about the need for, for validation and empathy, that yes. whatever it is that led to a person's trans identity, when parents or other people say, no, you're not trans, that, that the way that um, Helena was describing the, the ROGD phenomenon, that that people were responding to that, like, you think that I don't deserve empathy.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. It feels like when when somebody says you are really trans, especially if they say you are neurologically trans, then that means like you are that means you are deserving of someone to like hold in witness to your suffering. And there's a lot of psychological steps from point A to point B, but I do think that that it is I think that it's something that happens absolutely.
0: And I think it's 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 actually explains the trend uh, that you see online a lot or in like on young people's like like Twitter bios or wherever, where people are listing diagnosis or diagnoses where it's like, you know, G, GD, ASD, um, OCD, you know, people have all these diagnoses that, that are essentially like, it, it validates their pain. Like it validates, if you have a diagnosis, then you're worthy of love and attention and empathy, but just, just normal human experiences and normal mm-hmm. suffering, normal, those don't those aren't valid enough to warrant actual love and care and attention you have to have a diagnosis to to yes. to provide that means you have to be nice to me
2: yes absolutely and i mean yeah and i i even experienced that frustration like in my transgender support groups you know some some lady who you know some 50 year old male to female you know trans woman with tell me, you know what, maybe you're too fixated on these psychiatric labels and you should just look inside your heart. And I'd be like, well, why don't you, you know, like it's, I would smile and say, well, sure, thanks. But inside I'd be like, well, why don't you just like spit on my friggin' face? Like, you? <laughs> you know what I, like I mean, that's, you know what I mean? Like I would, I would feel insulted even though that's not something that should be insulting. Um. So yeah, I think that there is a seeking of witnessing to suffering that kind of gets routed through wanting a medical label or perhaps a psychiatric label. Um, and that was something that I experienced very much.
1: So what was the process for you of, of walking yourself out of that trans identity and that, that need to, you know, identify with th- those labels?
2: Well, I think it was a collection of things. Um, Excuse me, sorry. One of the, I think one of the early things that I, I essentially just started to have a growing sense of skepticism about the ways that the trans communities that I was in, so say this online by one and then the in person one, I started to have a growing sense of skepticism about like the whole framework. That, that group was working in. So it wasn't necessarily that I was saying I am, I in particular am not in this. It was more like, it was more like if the framework that I'm being presented is true, then I am trans. And then the question is, is the framework true? And um, I think, so thinking about um, Aaron T, like you said, the psychosomatic stuff that, learning about that was a big thing that planted this little seed of doubt in my mind as to whether my experiences of sex dysphoria and those very concrete sensory experiences I was having, whether they meant what I thought they meant. And so I had, I had a friend at the time that I was going through all this stuff, who was one of the few people who was willing to tolerate my needs to constantly ruminate on my internal gender feelings. And you know, he would, um, he w- He was not a part of the trans community in any way. And he was just, you know, kind of a chill guy. And I think that having someone to listen to me was very helpful for that. And someone who like was willing to ex- kind of express interest and dig into it a little bit. And he had had a very interesting experience at a young age that I guess would could be classified as a psychosomatic illness. And it was the first time that I had ever been exposed to that concept. And that was that he had um, lost his, the ability to move his legs when he was in elementary school. And, you know, he went to school in a wheelchair for a period of time. He, you know, was taken to all sorts of doctors who did all sorts of crazy tests and nobody could figure out what was going on. And his parents were very worried. And eventually he, they, you know, they realized, well, He's also kind of depressed because of all of this stuff. And so they took him to talk therapy and he worked through some childhood depression and then he could walk again. And so, you know, learning about that, it was kind of this like, wow, wait, so things like that can happen. And there was something about the fact that like, that's such a very concrete physical experience. You know, nobody can deny that, you know, the ability to move your legs is like, that's a f- that's a thing happening in your body. That's, that's in the classification of, of medical stuff, you know? And so the idea that that could happen as, you know, have a psychological origin was, you know, it was a little mind blowing to me at the time. And also I think because I was hearing it from someone who I, you know, felt, you know, empathy for my friend about this, I think that that also helps because I think if I had just read about it in a clinical book, it wouldn't have resonated as much. But because this was my friend, I kind of felt like, well, of course you deserve empathy for this. And of course, you know, your, you know, this experience that you have is just as important as it would have been if it had been a classical medical condition. And, you know, there was no doubt about that in my mind. And so I think because I saw like, wow, well, this person this person is worthy of being heard about this, um, you know, regardless of whether this was, you know, a nerve, you know, a nerve function issue or a psychological issue, and so that kind of helped me see my own stuff in the same way. It sort of, at first, it introduced me to the thought that I, perhaps, I could have very concrete body experiences that could be psychological in origin, and secondly, that if I do that i don't i don't have to feel like that's lesser you know i don't have to feel like that's this like lower tier thing and that really i would be more worthy and more validated if it was really you know neurological or independent or something so that was really helpful for me and i think that that sort of i i started to sort of carry that concept around a little bit as i was thinking about the experiences i was having with my body and that was so that was great and then I think also, honestly, I started to get kind of annoyed with my in person transgender group because I felt like some of the stuff that they would say was a little bit sexist. And so I would get kind of like privately mad at them, like ironically, because all of them were presenting as women and I wasn't, but I would be sort of like, you know, miffed like as a woman about, I don't know, like people would say things like, well, I knew that I had a little girl's brain instead of a little boy's brain because I was bad at sports. And I would be like, but well, girls could be good at sports, <laughs> you know, I mean, and if, I wouldn't say that, of course, but I think it, or, you know, I could tell, or, you know, another thing that I remember someone saying was like, I could tell I had a little girl's brain instead of a little boy's brain because I wasn't a good leader and boys are good leaders. And I was super annoyed at that. But of course, like I didn't say it, I was just privately annoyed. And so like I just remember people dropping all these little comments about kind of things that they noticed that they were bad at that led them to conclude that they were women. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all, all
0: all all of what I what I determine as failures in myself. This must mean I'm a woman.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and
3: because women are just you know, failed women. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> And, you know, it, and, you know, so it would be all of these people who themselves were, you know, presenting as women and wearing dresses and saying these things. And then I'd be coming in in my, you know, trying to pass clothes and, you know, using the male pronouns and everything. And I would feel very offended as a woman about, you know, <laughs> what they would be saying. And, but, you know, only privately. And so that was part of what started to make me think, well, some of this seems to be kind of based on stereotypes. And you know, maybe that, and that, that kind of led me, I think, to, to feel maybe less emotionally engaged with the community. And I think that a little bit of that, that feeling of disengagement, I think actually also led me to, to almost wants to find a way out and sort of, it it almost led me to this place where I preferred to find a way to interpret my experiences that meant that I didn't have to, um, you know, change my sex. And I think I think that that probably was a tipping point in some way of like, at some point, I sort of unconsciously went from kind of wanting to be trans to kind of not wanting to be trans. And I do think that that then just affected how I would choose to interpret, you know, information from my own mind or from other people as it came in and sort of like seek some alternate route. Um, Let me think. So, oh yeah, I also had this experience of um, learning for the first time that there is such thing as butch lesbian community which almost kind of feels like this little um bookend to like the thing with the pamphlet where it's like no that doesn't exist and i'd be like that's sad and you know then over here being like oh it does exist and me going like oh interesting and um i remember i was in my you know like my passing male passing clothing Which, um, by the way, I never even cut my hair for this, which like makes it sound like I was not, you know, committed. Like I talked to like my HR department and, you know, my doctor and I was like very, you know, in my mind, very committed like this. But I never I never cut the hair. Um, So passing garb was like, you know, tight, super tight ponytail. um, (laughs) Hanes Hanes T-shirts, the kinds that you can get from Michael's, the Michael's craft shop because they, they had like this very, they, they were like exactly the right cut for me to look a little more square. And, you know, I would wear a binder and all of that. Um, but I would, I was also still very comfort focused. So I would make the binder really loose and it kind of looked like I had a barrel chest, but it was just binder and then like air, it was not a good look. Um, but anyway, um, so, so yeah, I was looking online to try and find passing tips and, I found an article that if I might be remembering this wrong, but I think it might've been literally titled how to not look like a butch lesbian. And that was, it was news to me because I had only ever heard the term butch lesbian as sort of like an individualist insult. Like it was something mean you said about a woman who was doing who you felt like was not doing femininity right and the idea was that these were kind of like isolated lonely people who were just like individually bad at this thing that other women around them are good at you know and you know growing up in the south maybe that's that was the southern interpretation you know and then and and in the south and not being connected to like a gay community so you know in this article they were You know, the the trans man who wrote it was talking about, you know, everybody knows if you're in some place like, I don't know, like some big liberal city, there's going to be these communities of butch lesbians. And if you don't watch out, if you don't, you know, have make sure your earrings are right and your hair is squared the correct way, people are going to think you're one of them. And that was mind blowing to me because, you know, you're like, oh, I can be one of them. Exactly. It was like <laughs> the opposite of what the article intended. And I was like, wait. So this is implying that this other option exists, and the article is about how you make sure to avoid that. But what if that's <laughs> going and it was like the idea of there being these communities. It just it felt. It just felt like it completely bowled me over, and it's interesting to me because like I feel like I still I still feel a sense of. I don't know, almost like needing to apologize for the amount that the existence or non-existence of butch-lesbian community mattered to how I felt about myself and how I felt about my own decisions, because it, like, I don't know, like, I keep on thinking, like, it feels like it shouldn't matter, you know, it feels like. I should just be able to either be a masculine woman if I want or be kind of androgynous, which is kind of how I fall most of the time and have it and not have it related to a community. And also that if there is a community, it shouldn't have to be related to sexuality. But when I look realistically at how I would sort of respond to like news in my environment about that, that community, either existing or not, it feels like it was so pivotal to, how I felt about my choices related to like, what like, it felt like it was something that gave me an alternative, a viable alternative to transition. And there's something that I still almost feel a little weirdly guilty about how much it mattered. Like I should have felt like there was a viable alternative even if that other thing didn't exist. Like why was that thing so important? <laughs> so anyway, I don't know, I'm, I'm rambling on that, but it's something. I think that's something I'm still processing. So so yeah, but um, that did, at the time I was still married to a man, and I was starting to wonder whether I perhaps was a lesbian. I think not just because of, you know, any of that sort of stuff, not because of gender expression or community, but just, I was just getting these very sort of strong intuitive senses of like, maybe I'm not supposed to be with a man, like and kind of this longing for like, oh, what would it be like to be in a relationship with a woman? And, you know, I would start having these, kind of just these thoughts pop into my head all the time of like, if I stay in this relationship, I will go through the rest of my life and I will die without ever having like a real loving romantic relationship with a woman. And that just like started to feel just like this overwhelming sadness. Um, So anyway, I think probably shortly after reading that article, I started, you know, I kind of had this little aha moment of, you know, being, you know, very carefully dressing, you know, to pass as well as I could at the time and kind of checking myself out and seeing whether I thought I was doing a good job. And then realizing like, wait, is this like what a lesbian can be? Or like, is this what a butch lesbian is? And kind of feeling like that felt more satisfying to me than, thinking of myself as being a man trying, like a trans man trying to pass. And I kind of, at that point, I just decided like, well, that's kind of cool. And then at the time, I mean, it was also, it was very mixed up with, of course, I was still with a man. And I think, you know, at first, I think I just sort of thought of it as like, oh, I'm kind of just a mask I'll do this thing of like being a masculine presenting woman. And I'm like a masculine presenting bisexual woman. And, I think, um, so that essentially, it almost kind of gave me an excuse to drop out of my trans groups, which it feels like I had been feeling more and more distanced from them because of me having, wanting to get more in depth about all of the other ways that I could interpret my experience and kind of like not being able to have those conversations and feeling kind of shut down in that way, and then sort of the thing with the gender stereotyping. So it felt like I basically just quickly glommed onto this other thing and was like, okay, this is how I'm going to, like, like th- that's going to be my route for expressing all this stuff now. And I'm going to, you know, I basically let everybody know, okay, you know, I've been questioning whether to transition and I think now I'm not going to do it. I'm doing this other thing instead. And I basically, I just quickly like dropped out of my chance groups. Uh, We happened to move across the country at about the same time just because of his, him taking a new job. So, um, you know, basically I dropped out of all my trans groups, desisted and moved across the country. So, (laughs) yeah.
1: And you've never looked back.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, what am I thinking? Um, And then about three months after that, or no, maybe about six months, about six months after that, I left that relationship in order to try and figure out whether I was gay, because I didn't think I would have the opportunity to figure it out in the relationship. Because, you know, I felt like I needed, you know, concrete verification, and I'm not a cheater. And so I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to resolve that. So I left. And that's kind of, um, you know, and then I, you know, I moved to the city, and I, Pretty quickly had like a casual relationship with a woman and realized that, you know, in, in that intimate setting that there was a lot of stuff happening for me that had never happened before. And as that, I was, you know, having a lot of, you know, I mean, I'm not going to explain it. Everybody knows what that is, <laughs> but yeah, I, I had my first, you know, intimate experiences with a woman and it was like, oh, that's, that's what sex is about. I get it now. And so then I came out as gay very quickly. So, yeah, there was this period of probably a year where I went from seriously considering um, both hormones and surgery to desisting, to moving across the country, to getting divorced and then coming out as gay.
0: Big life changes.
2: Yeah. What, what and then, year was
0: it? Sorry, I didn't see I'm really obsessed with like actual chronology of things. Is it 2015? Okay. About 2013.
2: Um, oh, 13. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I moved to Boston and I, see, you know, kind of got involved in like the LGBT community in Boston and it was really great. So. And you
0: were saying that you kind of got kind of enmeshed in the lesbian feminist scene and you were actually um present for the, uh, the the two final episodes or the two final um years of mitch fest is that yes. right so you kind of um, saw the full trajectory go
2: yeah yes i was a festy um so and <laughs> that was um yes that was really great for me and i sort of realized that um So of course there's so much controversy about, you know, I don't know for any listeners who don't know what that is, Mitch Fest is the Michigan Women's Music Festival. It was a longstanding, um, a female only women's festival with strong ties to the lesbian feminist community. Started in, gosh, maybe 1969. I know it went for 40 years. And um, it was, you know, really an institution within the lesbian community. It also became very controversial especially in its last years for, um, kind of, for not being, su- for, for some people's perspectives, not being sufficiently inclusive of male to female transgender people. And, you know, questions about like, well, the festival's clothing optional. If someone has a penis, can they be out and have it there? You know, a lot of people didn't like that. And there was a lot of kerfuffle or back and forth about that and i actually felt like one of the things that drew me to the festival was that having come from this place of having felt a little bit stifled by the ideologies and frameworks within the transgender communities i had been in i kind of felt like i wanted a place to process that and i felt like um, unlike my lgbt groups in the city where it definitely felt like you know you don't talk about that stuff, like if you have, if you have differences of opinion related to things with the transgender community, you don't talk about that here because that's awkward and somebody will yell at you, you know, and so it kind of felt like Mitch Fest was like, oh, these are like the people who are okay with, with saying very openly that they disagree and kind of digging their heels in on certain things. And that actually, you know, and you know, disagreeing in the sense of, like, you know, there was a group of trans women who believed very strongly that, you know, they should be, you know, that the experience of having either a male or a female body should be considered irrelevant to feminism in general, and also specifically to, you know, feminism and, you know, conversations that go on about being a woman at places like Mitchfest. And then there were a lot of other people you know, some people who would say, "Well, if you're male, then you just don't have a place here," and then some people saying, "Well, if you're male, you can come, but you should understand that your experience is not exactly the same as that of a female person." And both of those were considered highly offensive to some groups of trans women. Although there also, I've also met a number of trans women who felt that that was logical and that it was perfectly fine. So you know, it's not like there's this unified thing, but there was this very loud group that was like, you know, no, if you are even speaking of yourself as a female, as having a commonality with another person because she's also female, that that is transphobic. And that exact concept, that exact concept of like I'm female and I'm sharing my experiences with other people who are female was I'd say a core concept of the festival. And so because <laughs> of that, this natural conflict and the ways that a lot of feminist spaces at the time were resolving that conflict more mainstream feminist spaces was just sort of by caving and saying like, all right, if a trans woman ever says that we are, that we did something bad by talking about our female bodies as if there's something, as if there's something that brings us together or that we could share experiences with, then we will apologize and we'll make sure to not do it again. And that resulted in a lot of shutting down of important conversations and important sort of emotional processing in those mainstream feminist spaces that then some people started at kind of scratching their heads wondering, well, where did that stuff go? So say things like, you know, the experience of, like like one thing I remember specifically is somebody published an article that said, you know, I went to a clothing optional women's event and it made me more comfortable with my breasts because I saw other women whose breasts also were not like, you know, magazine perfect or were not what society says they should look like. And that made me feel more confident with my breasts. And it was, you know, this kind of nice, feel-good article. And then I remember kind of going back to it at some point because I bookmarked it. And the article had that section of it had been removed and it had been replaced with an apology. And she said, I've heard from many trans women that this was highly offensive because someone who is born male and doesn't have breasts, this is implying that that person is is somehow not a part of this shared thing I had with these other women and that this was deeply offensive of me and I sincerely apologize and that whole section of the article had been removed. So that's the sort of thing that was happening in mainstream feminist spaces and some people were like, well, maybe I don't want to talk about my commonality with my boobs and other people's boobs, you know, and like, and you know, how we feel about them and how they affect our place in society. And so I think I kind of was one of the influx of people who came into those, those more hardcore lesbian feminist spaces where they're just, you know, they were the ones who like, they're digging their heels in. They're kind of iconoclastic. They've been, you know, they've kind of been rabble rousers for the past 40 years and they're kind of going to be in that mode. They're kind of hard asses. And I, I appreciated that about them actually. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, <laughs> you know, it felt kind of like that's what I wanted is I wanted a place with leadership that when that sort of stuff happened and somebody, you know, like talks about their female body and then a the trans woman demanded an apology that they don't apologize. And they said, oh, actually, we think we were still right. <laughs> and, right. you know, so if you wanted that, the place you went was places like the Michigan Women's Music Festival and other lesbian, feminist or radical feminist places. So that's kind of what I did. And It actually was really nice. Um, I would say the majority of people there, well, firstly, the majority of people there were quite a bit older than me, and most of them honestly didn't have strong opinions on anything related to transgender politics or its effect or non-effect on those spaces.
0: Like, because it was- It was a pretty minuscule issue at the time, right?
2: I mean, at the time, it it was big if you were on Twitter, it was big if you were 25 and on social media. But if you were a 50 year old lesbian who had been going there since 1980, like it just wasn't something that came up a lot. And so it just wasn't like for someone like that, it's just not going to be a that's not going to be like a a pivotal, a pivotal part of that person's experience. So, you know, it was um, I actually feel like in some ways the people who were in my cohort who were the ones who were coming in because we were looking for a replacement for stuff we were no longer able to do in mainstream feminist spaces those were the people who were talking a lot about the trans controversy with it and then someone who was right like a 50 year old lesbian who's been doing this since 1980 like she you know often if i would talk to that person she'd be kind of confused and say well I've never met a trans woman, but if they're nice, why don't we, you know, it's, it's fine, whatever. I don't have a strong opinion. Why do you, why are you all, you know, why are you all making this so uncomfortable? And so that was it. Um, But anyway, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but yeah, that was, um, I did find that at in-person places like the women's festival, it was much more you know, just a bunch of people who were coming because of some commonality about, you know, wanting to process stuff about being a woman. And it wasn't, it's weird to say this, but in some ways it wasn't particularly political in terms of like what we think of as like political issues. And, but then um, online radical feminist spaces and online lesbian feminist spaces, it felt like very often were increasingly only about talking about trans stuff. And I mean, I think some of that probably also reflects like the spaces I was in in particular, but it definitely, oh gosh, it's so hard to think about how I would want to explain this because I also I want to feel like, I want to make sure that I'm being charitable to everyone. And I feel like I don't want to like, like it, it's very hard for me to think about how I would want to phrase this. But I think that there, I think that within especially lesbian feminist spaces, There were benefits and drawbacks, and to being in those spaces. And one of the benefits was there was the sort of sense of like we can explore ideas and concepts that are considered sort of taboo or like too feminist in some ways for, you know, like for mainstream society. And we're sort of in our little sheltered space where we can really go deep into this stuff. But then there was also I definitely got a sense that I think probably comes up in almost any anything that describes itself as a separatist space, of it being kind of presented as a shelter from the troubles of the real world. And I think that there's a particular kind of personality type that tends to be drawn to that, which is maybe somebody who is having a little bit of, maybe say like there's things going on in the real world. You know, I'm saying, you know what I mean, like lesbian separatists spaces are i guess also part of the real world but like mainstream society that there's um you know maybe somebody who has a lot of anxiety or maybe someone who had some really terrible experiences and who is having a hard time engaging with mainstream society because of just feeling so different in some ways and i think that sometimes folks who are in that mentality and there may be kind of an isolationist personality type related to this or and I think some of it also can be related to anxiety that that person can sort of look for a shelter within this very like iconoclastic subculture and I think there's a lot of ways that this iconoclastic subcultures form you know in our in our broader culture and I think that especially like internet radical feminism or like internet lesbian separatism kind of became that for a number of people in the sense of like, this is my shelter from the rest of the world. And that mm-hmm. puts a lot of pressure on those spaces also to be this sort of perfect utopia and people get very, very territorial because suddenly it kind of becomes about like, this is the space that I don't have to be anxious because this is like the, this is the, the safe place. And my experience, God, I feel like I'm going to look back on this later and see like, okay, I could have said this or that better. So I'm, I'm kind of just going on a tangent now. Um, but I feel like once somebody who maybe is quite a bit, has a, quite a bit of anxiety and brings that into sort of their fears when interacting with broader the broader culture and who maybe feels different. And I mean, I classify... Myself as this to some degree, although I think now that I I manage it well and I, I feel like I have I've have well managed anxiety. But um I think that there can become this real this real territorialism when somebody has found a place and kind of staked this out as this is my safe place. This is the place where all of those other problems don't exist here. We've 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 taken, you know, all of the other people like me, we've come together and we've made this nice place for ourselves and suddenly now that place has to fulfill all of this person's needs which is if you have anxiety impossible and um, I don't know if any of this is resonating. Yeah. Um,
0: it,
1: it, it entirely is yes yeah, yeah. They, uh, yeah. There's a tendency with some trans people it's almost like they want to seek out specifically seek out those spaces and be a part of those spaces for validation of of their own identities you know yes. like, like why why was it so important for trans women to to be included in something like Mishfest it seems like a certain not certainly not all of them but there are certain trans women that seem to specifically target those kinds of events yes in order to feel validated it's like if i can if i can break into lesbian separatist mm-hmm. groups then i've made it you know what yes, yes i don't see trans men doing that to the same extent but so i wonder how much of that I mean a i think some of that is is for for validation but i wonder to if maybe they don't understand that very unique to women's need mm-hmm. for those because you the way you were describing those spaces as safe spaces and mm-hmm. and spaces where you need to be away from men to process certain women-only experiences i don't think men gather for that reason like I haven't mm. been a part of very many men's groups because I just, I just don't, I just don't go there. But yeah. whenever I have um, encountered men's only spaces, it's not for the purpose of have, needing a safe space away from women to process their feelings. Like it, th- those mm. men's groups have to take on of, they're more. Um, what can we, let's get together and get something done, right? Let's get gotcha. together and yeah. build something. Let's get together and fundraise it. So it's more, much yeah. more kind of project-oriented.
3: Yeah. Like, like as a bad. club,
1: where, and women's yeah. spaces are quite different from, uh, not that there aren't women's spaces that are also project-oriented, but yeah, yeah. the way you're describing a need for female-only spaces away from men mm-hmm. because it creates a certain safety. and I don't think many men understand that. So, yes. it, so trans women, I don't think, always understand that um, unique need that women have for, for spaces that don't include males.
2: Yes, I think that that's very, very true. And I'm also realizing, I, I feel like I have so much self-doubt about this rambling tangent I went on, but I hope it didn't sound like I was like, like just wholeheartedly, you know, bashing the whole concept of safe spaces. Like I think safe the idea of having, those cultural safe spaces is so complicated. I think that it is absolutely necessary. I think that there is something about being in a space with just females that is many females, including myself, find very important in order to be able to process. Like there's some stuff that you could have 100 women there and one man, and it would be completely different than if it was just the 100 women without the one man. Um, and complete, completely different feeling. And there was always this, this sort of um, reputation with Mitch Fest, that it's a place where you can do a lot of psychological healing, especially from trauma related to sexism or sexual trauma, because um, of having this space with a complete absence of men and how that sort of allows you to emotionally relax. And there was this sort of idea that For a lot of us whenever there is a man in our vicinity we always have our guard up a little bit and that if the men are gone then that's when we can that's when the the shield drops and that's when that's very productive for this emotional processing i think that that is actually absolutely true for many women not for all women like so for instance You know, I feel like there's a commonality here with like, I would always have a female therapist, whereas I also know other women who don't care what gender the therapist is um, or who prefer a male therapist. And I think think that, you know, different people have different needs. I think for many women, myself included, especially who sort of feel the effects of sexism very keenly for whatever reason, or perhaps who have a little bit of a sexual trauma background, that having that female-only space becomes absolutely important. Um, And so I think that a lot of the reason for, you know, the strong motivation to sort of fight this fight on that side of it was the protection of that space. And so it sounds like you're asking about, you know, what is the motivation on the other side? Why was, why is there this contingent of male to female transgender people who care so much whether they get to go to this one event when they like the whole rest of the world is open? Like, why this event? Um, I think some of it is that validation. Um, that sort of, I don't, I don't know why exactly the interest in, excuse me, in lesbian separatists. Actually, I do think a little bit. I think that there's an idea that. Because of this being this very sort of gentle, safe place. And that's the whole point of that, that I think there are a lot of trans women who feel very sort of anxious and oppressed in their daily lives and think, well, I want a safe space. And so anything that sort of is branding itself in that way, I think also that there are trans women who have the same, have the same sort of psychological drive to sometimes be away from men that a lot of females do and sort of see that as a commonality and see this is the place where we all go to get away from men and then the and then of course the question is then there's two different populations who are of disagreement about whether this person themselves is a man and so I think that there's that um I think that also some of it has to do with um I noticed one thing that I would hear a lot is you know from from like you know transgender activists on social media or whatnot of okay well in any feminist group and in any lesbian group we need to make sure there's always a trans woman there because we need someone to like listen and make sure that they're not creating some kind of anti-transgender insurgency you know there was sort of this this idea of that because this group was taking this hard line on you know the the whole like no people with male bodies because we're doing our thing and when you come over it messes with our thing um, there was this sense of like, I think there was this sense among some trans women of like, oh, that means that these people are dangerous to us. And I have, and I think that that's kind of where some of that safe space mentality comes in and sometimes becomes expressed in a way that's not entirely healthy is this idea that, it was this idea that I would hear repeatedly of if there exists any community anywhere that that disagrees with us openly and that feels emboldened to disagree with with our belief with our belief that we are literally that we are literally female with our belief that we are that there is no difference between male and female like if there are spaces that are that are so bold as to say that yes we do feel there is a a difference between male and female then that means that no trans person is safe until that space is destroyed and i actually it actually reminds me of something that I heard from a trans woman who I was friends with in that group in Sacramento, my in-person group, where um, her belief, and I will say that um, I didn't hear anybody else say this. So it could be that this, that she, that this would have been considered extreme by the other people there. I don't know. But her whole thing was that um, one of one of the things she said exact phrasing was a woman who likes to wear man's a woman who likes to wear men's clothes is just a trans man who's afraid of surgery. So there's this idea. And then like, I started to elaborate and she did say like, she did believe very much that basically that it should be socially unacceptable for a person to be highly gender nonconforming unless they were doing it in the context of being transgender. And so for instance, you know, a woman should not be allowed to have a short haircut. She needs to, you know, she needs to decide what, what side she's on. she, needs to either be a traditionally feminine woman or she needs to live as a trans man.
0: And- I think that has a lot that's motivated by, by a, again, that same validation thing. It's like, if there's a lot of gender nonconformity around you, then mm-hmm. your your feminine display is not validated as being of a woman.
2: Yes, right? I think that will too. And I think that that also ties into the safe space thing because I think that it ties into the connection for many people between validation and safety because um, another way that she phrased it was that trans people are not safe until everyone understands that every gender nonconforming person is trans. And for her that meant and like she literally believed that we should bring back like the laws about clothing and things in order to enforce this. Um, and so I think I and you know for her, I know she was going through, a lot of things that I'm sure were incredibly difficult. So, for instance, she was going through a divorce as she was coming out as transgender, and she knew very much that acceptance, you know, public acceptance of trans people was going to be one of the things that, for the rest of her life, you know, influenced whether she could have custody of her children, um, and you know, it would influence whether she felt safe walking outside of her door every day. And she definitely had this idea that for her, that safety. Had to come from validation and it had to come from people validating that she must be trans and that there was no other way to interpret her and what she was doing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if there are gender non conforming people, then that means that there is another, that means that there is an alternative. And to her, if there is an alternative, that means that she will not be fully understood and validated, and therefore people will think less of trans people as a group and it will result in discrimination and oppression. So that's, that's definitely the vibe I got. Um, I mean, from, I would say she's the only person who I've had that sort of extended conversation with in person, like a, like a real life friend who believed it to that an extreme level. But I have, of course, there's people on the internet who I've seen believe this. So I mean of course you can find people on the internet who believe anything but it feels like enough enough people that it feels like a pattern rather than it just being like oh I found an isolated wacko on the internet you know
1: like, it seems like historically so, gender nonconformity is like this hot potato that people just kind of throw around it's like no I don't want it in my group I don't like,
3: <laughs> you know, yeah because I
1: remember like there and, and there were a number of different social movements you know that that all kind of intersected around the same time that I think led to this crisis that we're seeing mm. i mean we had we had, like I you know, said earlier, that the AIDS um, crisis in the gay and lesbian community, which really shifted um, and, and necessitated the gay and lesbian community needing to reinvent itself and really rejecting a lot of gender nonconformity. Mm-hmm. And then, at the, and then we, there were a lot of um, radical feminists also at that time kind of fighting over, well, how should women be presenting themselves? And they're saying, well, mm-hmm. you can't be feminine because then you're just, you know, you're just looking the way men want you to look and that's not feminist. Oh, but you can't be a butch lesbian either because now you look too much like a man. And, and Mm -hmm. so kind of, or you can't be heterosexual because heterosexuality is, is in all cases just sexual assault. And so the, you know, political lesbian, lesbianism became a thing. And then at the same time you had the North American churches say, you know, really um, feeling like the church had become too feminine and really putting a lot of pressure on women to be more feminine and men to be more masculine and and oh, you cool. still see that in a lot of ev- evangelical circles of mm-hmm. really reinforcing this idea of men being very masculine
3: and mm-hmm. reinforcing
1: those those gender roles so you had all these sort of things yeah. happening in at least in North America around the same time where trans became kind of a dumping ground for anyone that just couldn't for whatever reason fit into a very um stereotypical male or female role
2: yeah that's really interesting I have never quite thought of it that way but especially with I'd say sort of the HRC style pursuit of gay normality and especially female masculinity that thing of you know there being you know this this sort of new wave in the trans community that you know seems to have like a critical mass of people who have this burning desire to make everyone believe that every gender non-conforming person is trans and that this group saying like, Hey, we, we want all of them. And then, you know, maybe these more traditionalist gay groups being like, well, we don't want them here. And yeah. So I could see those sort of groups working in conjunction and I, yeah, I don't think I'd put that together before. I, I will say, I think one, one little bookmark on that is that there's such a massive variation in Sort of concepts of gender nonconformity in, say, like lesbian feminist or radical feminist spaces. So, for instance, places like Mitch Fest and pretty much any other place that I've been were, you know, probably 75% of the women there I would have classified as butch lesbians. And like gender nonconformity was very much celebrated um, in those spaces. I do, I think that there have been sort of branches of radical feminism where you know, what we could call female masculinity is looked down on, but I at least had never personally encountered them except for very occasionally in arguments on the internet. So, you know, that at least was not a a part of my personal experience with it. I I found in person, large in-person lesbian feminist communities, I found to be more supportive of female masculinity than any other social space I had access to. Um, But, I think, and I just kind of wanted to put put that little tag on that, but that I do. I think that also I have I have seen evidence that there are kind of these more these more hardcore sort of groups who are maybe a little more inherently political than like the festival spaces are, because the festival spaces are also essentially entertainment, and not everyone there has a political mindset. But yeah, I have I've run into that sort of political thing, pretty much only on social media of like, you know, for women like don't be too feminine, don't be too masculine, like everyone be androgynous. And I've also run into a lot of middle-aged lesbians who talk about for them when they felt like their communities suddenly changed over to this feminist mindset of we all have to be androgynous. So I think that that absolutely did happen. It feels kind of like by by the time I came in, it kind of felt like I, like I was never really a part of
1: it if that makes sense. It's interesting now to see feminists and the LGBT and some, you know, more conservative Christian organizations working together against the trans group. It's like, well, you're all the ones that like dumped us into this trans category <laughs> in the first place. And and so one of the things I'm really watching for in yeah. in as they're lobbying against, you know, transitioning children and and trans in general is I'm yeah. really watching for, but how, how much are you willing to embrace non-conformity?
2: Yes, that is, that's essentially the measuring stick that I hold organizations to when I figure out who I feel allied with in terms of all this stuff. <laughs> you know, like I, you know, like I'll run into, you know, people getting together to try and, you know, talk about the risks with transition of kids, which is a huge, huge issue and that needs more attention. And I'll run into groups where people are saying, "And yeah, these kids should be allowed to be as gender nonconforming as they want. And, you know, this is, you know, let them be themselves. And I'm like, yeah. And then I'll run into other groups who are like, well, the entire problem is that this, you know, this woman has been somehow tricked or traumatized into refusing to embrace her natural femininity. And she needs to learn to, you know, and she will be fixed when she learns to accept her natural femininity. And that's when I kind of go. I don't think you have the full picture, mm. and um, and I think I'll more likely see that with a religious group, or like a specifically like a politically conservative group. I don't know. Have you all run into that as well?
0: I'm starting to see a lot of. Well, so one thing I wanted to to go back to is when you were talking about when the, like the the music festival ended, and a lot of like those those same that same kind of type of people when they started seeking out. Like that same experience in online communities instead, um, but it's still like kind of like that that same kind of like escape from the real world. This is where we all can be together, and like like there's a, that same kind of you know perhaps anxious personality type
3: um, mm-hmm.
0: that that I think especially in an online environment can get probably a lot more toxic than it would in an, a real life environment. But what I thought of when you were talking about that is is like these these online feminist uh, communities. Right now, I, I spend a lot of time, obviously, in the gender critical trans feminist discussion online, and we're seeing a big rift there between those who are the more mainline gender critical, who are saying, "Oh no, we should talk with and engage with you know transgender people," and you know both men and women are, are working together to resolve this. And there's this this faction of the feminists who are so so opposed to that. They're very angry about the idea that a you know, trans people could be allied with you in in talking about the whole genderology situation, as well as let alone having men talk about it as well and try and you know it's like now I mean I've been seeing this for months. Um, I've only really it's probably going on a lot longer than that, but I've been really kind of clued into it the last few months. And what you were just describing about how these women, you know, when when the in when the in real life uh, separatist organizations or, or spaces were taken away, they flocked online. And so when I think about it in that context, the, the, the animosity um, makes a lot more sense to me now. Just just when you were saying that, I was like a lot clued in for me um, um, with with just kind of like the, the 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 animosity that that I see in those communities um, um, when there's like a. Trans perspective or or a male perspective, Um, it makes a lot. It makes sense in that context. Um, But one thing I've seen in in that same in those same communities, um, Mm -hmm. what you're saying about the gender nonconformity, a lot of them are very opposed to gender nonconformity in men. They see it all as the expression of a fetish, and therefore, like a man in a dress is just. You know, should be mocked and ridiculed and not at all accepted because oh, they're just perving all over the place. And so, so I see it in these hyper feminist liberal, or not liberal, but like let's say left wing um, mm-hmm. factions as well as that as that opposition to at least male gender nonconformity.
2: Yes, I've seen that too, and I it feels right. It feels like. Well, well, I think one thing for me is that I feel very sad whenever I meet a young person, especially a young lesbian who finds those people on the internet and thinks that like, that's what the MitchFest people were about because as far as I can concerned, they were like such different crowds. First of all, Mitch Fest was a music festival and literally a lot of people were there for the music and not the politics. Um, but also, right, like, I think you're completely right. I think you completely hit the nail on the head that like, first of all, these spaces, those in-person spaces got shut down. And so then um, there is the stream of people who no longer have those in- in-person spaces and moved onto the internet, which um, I don't feel like I know people in person who did that, but I'm sure they're there. And then there's also the young people who say maybe in the 80s would have gone to the in-person space, but they don't have it. They're seeking that type of meaning they would have been seeking there they're now looking for it on the internet. And they're Because getting, that's
0: the only place it exists now,
2: yeah. It's getting like hyper radicalized in a way that would not have happened at the music festival, exactly. Um, and yeah, no, I think that those very insular online political communities get really toxic. Um, I, I pretty much dropped out of that part of like the lesbian, separatist, radical feminist type communities because I don't know of in-person stuff of that in my area. And I'm not willing to do that on the internet because it's so completely messed up, just the way that it evolved. And, but yeah, I've I've seen the same thing that you have of there being that contingent that is very hardline, and I think that actually a lot of that is that same sort of that same sort of anxiety fueled drive to like territorially defend safe spaces. That that some people have in the trans community as well. I see so many parallels and common personality types in these two groups. One hundred percent. Yeah. And so and yeah, I've I've seen the thing of sort of mocking gender nonconformity in men, and it's ridiculous. I I feel personally like I wish I knew more AGP men because the few who I like have you know did have friendships with in past parts of my life, we got along really well. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know, it's, it is to me very weird and sad what people on the internet think radical feminism is. And I feel like I don't know how much of it is like 15 year olds kind of getting in and creating this toxic thing that, that they think what radical feminism is and how much of it is actually like, Individuals who came from those actual communities and maybe are the sort of personality type that thrives in an insular internet community, and then the people who were perhaps a bit more level-headed and a little more kind of wanting to come at it with a with a whole person mentality—that those people simply don't do the internet. Don't don't do that. All yeah, the yeah. You know, but yeah, I think um, even though. You know, from my experience with the in person groups, I got, I definitely got a lot of benefit, especially with trauma processing, out of kind of my experience of, I guess, what could be called radical feminism or lesbian feminism in those spaces. But now, if I had, say, a young woman who was asking me if she should engage with that community, I would probably say no, because I know she's just going to go to the internet. (laughs) I, I, I know that's harsh, but it is what it is. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think that there is a great need on both sides for people who are not in that sort of survival mentality and not feeling like, you know, I need to do this sort of territorial staking out of my ideology in order for me to not know that I won't be murdered when I leave my apartment. You know, because, I mean, I think a lot of it does essentially come down to this existential fear, this thing of, like, I have my people, and if my people are recognized and respected, then I'm safe. And this is how I make sure that my people are recognized and respected, and some of it is by, you know, setting fire to anything that disagrees with me. I mean, we see this with religious conflicts, too, you know. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, a minority religious group can take the tack of... We will be safe if people around us are accepting of diversity or they can take the take the tack of we will be safe if all the people around us are forced to pretend they believe our religion. And I think that in some ways it's very similar to what we're seeing both on the trans side and on that extreme radical feminist side.
0: I think the root of it is like we are still just just tribal creatures who can only really uh, conceptualize, a, a, you know, a village of 50 to 100 people. And, uh, you, you know, like we're, we're just we're just not our brains are, haven't evolved to our, our actual current uh, uh, circumstances, is, is what I see.
2: I think you're right. And then whatever the Internet has done to human society has been like jet fuel poured all over.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the more technologically advanced, the more we re- we recede into our our base, our base brain.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. It's it's very true. It's ironic. Which, honestly, I think that some, coming from a technological standpoint, I think that social media platforms know that this drives engagement and therefore makes the money. And I think that. There are ways that social media platforms and experiences could be designed more thoughtfully that would allow us to be better humans with each other on social media, and I think that the fact that we don't see that is probably because it's not profitable. Yep.
1: Well, thanks the so much. Th- thanks for so much for agreeing to come on and, and chat with us. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, we'll have to have you back.
2: Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. I have had a blast. You all are both awesome and. Yeah, I can't wait to see what happens next with the podcast. I recommend you all to people all the time. Thank you so much. This has been great. Have a great day. Bye.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.